Let's pray together and ask God's help to study Revelation 2. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the power of your love. Thank you for the power of your love in this passage specifically to strengthen the weary among us, to unite relationships among us, to send the eager and ready to be dispersed into kingdom ministry among us, to gather in those who have come because they want a perfect love that they find not in themselves or anywhere else in this world and hope they'll find it in you. We have found perfect love in you and in you alone, and it's here for us to see, to receive and enjoy in Revelation 2. Teach us now, but don't just tell us about it. Deposit it into us, I pray, by the power of your word, by the presence of your walking among us, by your spirit dwelling within every believer and hovering over us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Yesterday, I had the privilege of heading over to Don and Jean Anderson's home because Don is in a hospital bed in their living room and sedated and in the last, what seems like the last hours of his life here on earth and prepared to transition to graduate into glory for his eternal life that continues before the presence of the Lord. It's at those times you think about What's the most important thing to say? What's the most important thing to feel? What's the most important thing to think about when you know that someone sleeping there is almost assuredly hearing you and and other people in the room, family members, wife, friends, family are eager for the best and the highest and the greatest things to be said and thought and sung right at the moment when someone's ready to depart from this life and enter into the eternal life to come. So I read out of 2 Corinthians 5 and I read out of a few other passages and quoted a few others all about the love God has for Don Anderson. The God of love who has this mighty, unstoppable, powerful, intimate, bashing through every resistance love for Don Anderson and for all believers. And I said, Don, I grasped his hand and it was warm. I said, Don, I want you to remember how big is God's love for you. I want you to remember how strong God's love for you is right now. And he made some indiscernible grunt. That's what I hope somebody says when it's my turn. When everything else has been settled, when every other arrangement has been made, when everything else is over, and it's time to meet the Lord of love face to face, what I want sung and said and remembered in my final departure here is the greatness of God's love for me in Jesus Christ. It's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to be engaged in 10,000 other good causes and purposes in the church and outside the church. And yet, over and over and over, the Scripture says, the love of God is the beginning, the middle, and the conclusion of all things. It's who He is. It's who we are in Him. 
John is writing to the church at Ephesus. He begins writing to seven different churches. You know all seven of these churches are real churches, and a messenger might have brought them in, in fashion letters, this letter, around to each of the seven churches in the order that they are uh, geographically laid out. Maybe that's even why these seven were chosen, but we know that because they were seven, they represent all the churches in the ancient world at the time, and because this is Holy Scripture, God intends for all churches everywhere to read each of these addresses to each church and receive them to ourselves. There's a word here in these verses Paul read to the church at Ephesus for you and me and this body at the landing. There's a word for you and I as individuals here as well. You'll see it. It's a sweet, but it's a sharp word. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the Holy Spirit with the words of Jesus Christ, is instructing John to write to the representative angel, the angel of the church at the landing, the representative angel whose job it is to burn like a star with the light and love of God so that when our lamp grows dim, he leans down and we're relit again. No smoldering wicks at the landing. Burned with white-hot passion, Lord, in this church so that everybody who comes in contact with the landing is confronted with the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Burn in this church. Sing and pray and lead your marriages and share the gospel with the lost and engage online. Go to school. Go to work with white-hot passion to burn for the glory of Christ. What other cause could there be worth burning for? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I said this was going to be in a, a sweet but a sharp word. You'll see how sharp it is in just a moment. But we must know who's speaking to us before we're ready to hear his words. It's the risen and glorious Christ. The vision we had of him is in Revelation 1, 9 through 20, and I told you that an aspect of that vision begins each instruction to each church. Here, it's the vision of the risen Christ holding seven stars in his right hand who walks among the golden, seven golden lampstands. Why are we told that this, this is the Christ? Why should we listen to him because of verse 1? The answer is because there are three, at least three indicators of his overwhelming love for his church, the church at Ephesus, and by extension, us. Do you see them? First, it's the seven stars. What are the seven stars? We were told in chapter 1, the seven stars are the angels. And they burn with starlight because it matches the sunlight of God's love beaming from Christ's face. Starlight and sunlight is the same thing. Sun is a star. The light is the mercy, the grace, the love of God as it burns from the face of Christ. And then when he sees and is walking among the lampstands, a smoldering wick where a lampstand is growing dim and his love is fading. He leans in with an angel star, as it were, and relights the oil of the Holy Spirit inside that golden lampstand. Seven stars means I have angels and I have messengers and I mean to keep my churches burning white hot for me. I mean to keep these churches burning white hot for me. I do not get glory from a golden lampstand that is tarnishing and cold. 
when the son of lawlessness is revealed and lawlessness is on the increase, most men's love will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 14, 12 through 14. I don't want to be one who's got hot love for Jesus now, but when lawlessness is on the increase, my love grows cold. Do you? I don't want to be that person. I want to be around people who are constantly leaning me and my family into the fire of Christ and say, burn for him. I, I want to preach in such a way that, that, that I'm like one of those silly little obnoxious candles that keep lighting after you blow them out on your birthday cake. They start up again and there it is. And you just keep leaning in and get your, your candles lit on my sputtering little candle. Christ has got seven angels' stars in his right hand and he's moving among his lampstands saying, I'm the reason you're going to stay lit. There's love in that. There's love in the golden lampstands. He calls our golden lampstands golden because they're precious to him. It's almost like the lampstand is our faith, our reservoir of receptivity where the Holy Spirit is poured in and the Lord brings his light and fire and the oil is lit, and we burn with a bright witness for Proctor and Duluth and the United States and the nations. And this little metal golden lampstand is precious according to the Old Testament allusions and according to 1 Peter. It's, it's our receptacle. It's our emptiness. We're nothing without him. But he calls us precious. He calls us golden. He wants the lampstands to recognize, I'm down among you because I love you. I'm down and with you because I love you. And that leads, of course, to the obvious, the third, that he's walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the lampstands. He is the Emmanuel, the Lord of our presence. He is with us. He's near to us. He knows what we're going through. His love is the stars and the gold and now the walking among us. He's aware of what your Saturday was like. He's aware of what your overnight was like. He's aware of your attitude coming this morning. He's aware of what you're thinking right now. He's aware of your temptations and your struggles and the designs of the enemy against you. He's aware of what others are doing to foil and frustrate your love for Christ. And he's aware of your burdens and your sorrows and your pain infinitely more intimately than you could ever imagine. He's walking among the lampstands. He knows what's coming for the landing. He knows what's coming in 2023 or 2025 or 2030. He knows what's coming. And he's walking among us, regarding us as precious as gold. And he has angels that burn with the fire of stars in his hand to relight us when we grow dim. This is the love of Christ that speaks. And he's now to speak a word to the Ephesians. This is the church at Ephesus, the church Paul addressed his letter to the Ephesians about. This is that exact church. And now he has such encouragement to speak to the work to the to the church at Ephesus, but he's also got a sharp word of correction, which is also love. It's also encouragement. It's also kindness, but it's going to come through a moment of pain. Prepare your heart for it. As I said, it's not just to the church at Ephesus, it's to us as well. The one who walks among us first speaks a word of encouragement in verses 2 and 3. I know, of course you do, Jesus, you're walking among us and you know all things. I know 
your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know. I know what you went through to get to this point. I know what it took for your transitions and your difficulties and your sorrows. I know the difficult relationships that you endure. I know the hard work you've invested in your church. I know the hard work you've invested in your faith, in your family, in your witness, in your job, your career, your education, your dreams, your hopes. I know, the Lord says, I know your toil and your patient endurance. And further, how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Here's the church at Ephesus, much like the church at the landing. It's a church that has sought to labor and be patiently enduring and resisting evil and trying very hard to speak the truth in love and to preserve the truth against mixture and contamination and error. Christ is commending that in the church at Ephesus, and he's commending it here among us as well. It's not to be less than diminished or marginalized, preserving truth, resisting evil. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city, you know that. The temple to Diana was there, and other gods were worshipped there. There was a Jewish contingent there seeking to restore ancient Jewish law, worship, and there were several other kinds of religions moving in and through Ephesus, and yet here's this church known for its strength of doctrine, known for its resistance of the evil and of falsehood and of false apostles, standing firm, and Christ is commending them. The word to Paul, through Paul to the Ephesian elders, you might remember, in Acts 20 was, there's going to be wolves coming to your church at Ephesus. You elders need to stand firm. The wolves are going to rise up from within you. Stand firm and resist them. Those who call themselves apostles don't always listen. If they're preaching a different Christ, then set them aside and do not fellowship with them. The wolves did come to Ephesus, and Ephesus did resist the wolves. And Ephesus got a reputation for remaining strong and pure in its love for truth. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. So they didn't just love truth, they loved his namesake. They did it for Christ's namesake. They had their, their theology right and they had their ordered values right. So much was right. And on top of that, he says at the end of verse 3, you've not grown weary And And when I hear Jesus talk this way to the church at Ephesus, I hear him talking that way to this church. I am so thankful that we're among a church that listens carefully and seeks to discern truth from falsehood and preserve and speak the truth in love as best as God helps us. Standing against error. When someone says, I love Jesus, you have to say, yes, but which Jesus are you talking about? There's the biblical Jesus, this one, the risen and glorious Christ who is himself the Son of Man and the Son of God, But then there's the Mormon Christ and the Jehovah's Witness Christ and the Muslim idea of Christ and the progressive idea of Christ and the socialist Christ and the homosexual Christ. And there's Christs of every stripe and sword and kind, none of which are the biblical Christ. Jesus said they would come and say, here's the Christ, here's the Christ, don't listen to them. 
Ephesians, in their love for Christ and for his name, were preserving the truth of who Christ is. And by his grace, as he helps us, we are seeking to do the same. His commendation to them is his commendation to us. And we have not grown weary by his help, just as they had not. This was a well-known church. Do you know who pastored the church at Ephesus? The first was Apollos. Yes, that Apollos from Acts. And then after that, Timothy pastored that church. And then after that, Paul was there for three years. And now, just before his exile, John the Apostle was the pastor at Ephesus. And he'll return back to Ephesus after his exile is over. He dies in Ephesus, history tells us. That's like the dream team of pastors. Good night. No wonder they had sound doctrine. But there's a way to have sound doctrine taught and believed and held on to that makes you proud and ugly and distasteful to Christ and to yourself and to others. It's a kind of way of taking something precious and beautiful, the sound doctrine of God's love in Christ, and not letting it transform us or renovate us, as we talked about in Sunday School today under Conrad's teaching, so that we become more like Christ, but we actually, with that sound doctrine, walk away from him and become less like Christ. Jesus hates this. I think you probably do too. And, and if you're feeling what I'm feeling right now as the word is, is pinching me, it makes me hate this in me. I'm not thinking of other people mainly. I'm thinking of how I hate it in me. I want to see the glories of God in sound doctrine and have them so transform me that I become like him. We look with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, and we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. I don't want to become less like Christ because of my understanding of who he is and what he's done. I want to become more like Christ. Can you imagine the Lord of glory and all his love, all his wisdom and sovereignty and his perfection and his righteousness and his justice saying the word but in verse 4? But, wait a minute, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Hmm. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What does Jesus mean? I don't think he means the Ephesians are committing apostasy. I don't think he means they've quit loving God. Because when the Bible talks about people who completely quit loving God, it, it treats them as if they had never known God in the first place. And it says this should be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, O, o Lord, come. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes. Or, or Jeremiah 2 talks about casting away a first love and God says there's disaster coming for you. That's not the way... John and Christ is speaking to the church at Ephesus. It's not the way he's speaking to us. No, in fact, here's what I think is being said. I think 
John, writing the very words of Christ, is speaking the heart of Christ to the church at Ephesus and to us to say, you had a higher love that you have let slide and, and go by the wayside when in fact I call you to repent and return to love me with the same height of affections as you think about me. Let what you think about me and all its height and truth awaken a matching affection of love in me that's just as high. Their lamp had grown cool. Even though it was full of oil and well-polished, they had put a bushel over the fire of their lamp and it had grown dim. Yes, they were working hard. Yes, they endured with patience. Yes, they resisted evil. Yes, they held on to sound doctrine and resisted false teaching of false apostles and false Christs. But they had lost this zeal and passion and white-hot love for God. The Fahrenheit of the temperature of their love had cooled dangerously. You can see it. Sometimes churches have sound doctrine and they just rely on the preaching of the past pastors. We used to have such and such in this pulpit thundering away and we know that we still cling to that. So we're good here. We're okay. We're, we're safe because we've had Paul be our preacher or Timothy or Apollos or John be our preacher. We're covered. There's no way we're going to slip from sound doctrine here. It's possible, isn't it, to hold sound doctrine in your heart and in your computer files and in your library and to lie about that doctrine by your attitude and lack of love. I don't want ever to do that. I'm convicted that there have been times that I have. Maybe we as a church have, God knows. Maybe you have, God knows. What did Jesus say to Peter after he received Peter in love and affection and forgiveness? Out on the beach of Galilee with the charcoal fire burning, he's ready to receive Peter and he receives Peter back. What question did he drill into Peter and ask him three times? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you see how this is what you say to your dear brother when he's breathing his last? This is what you say to yourself when you're thinking about the deepest, toughest struggles in your life. Do I love Christ? He has loved me. How do I love him in response? What are the hundred things that I have put between me and pure love for Christ that are getting in the way? They're disordered. All these other good loves, family and Getting, getting relationships ordered and money ordered and ministry stuff ordered and all kinds of important family questions and spiritual questions all have to be ordered, but they're getting in the way of the big and the high and the glorious, which is God is love, sent his son in love and purchased and produced in us that very same love with which to respond to him. Do you love me? Jesus asks. It was of huge consequence because of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus is saying, I would rather not be worshipped by a church that has sound doctrine if it doesn't have any love for me. When I give myself and my cross and my truth and my word and my spirit and all the teaching of the glorious things I've done to a church, it's meant to kindle and inflame white-hot love in them for me. When it doesn't, I withdraw the lampstand. That's happened all through Europe. It's happened in Africa. It's happened in the United States. It's happening in this city Oh, by God's grace, my prayer is that it may never happen in this church. May it never happen to you. May it never happen to me. How do we respond if you're feeling at all pricked by the correction of the Lord Jesus Christ in love to us? Verse 5 says, remember Repent and do again the works you did at the first. Remember who God is. Remember what he's done. Remember the glorious doctrines that you just ordered and got right and put in your computer or library or, or codified in a constitution. But remember them like you do when you come to the Lord's table. Remember, remember, remember. Savor it. Sweetly eat it again. Enjoy it again. That's what remember means. Same as it does at the Lord's table. Repent. I haven't lived in line with the glories of God's love. I have lived as, as if God's love is boring or insufficient, or I can change it and switch it up and make it to be something I want more than what it actually is. I repent, Lord. And I then ask you, pour your love into me by your Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5, in order that I might then do the works that I did at the first, which is meditating on the glory of God and then going out filled with his love, eager to share that love with all and any around. Joining Christ on his mission of love for his friends and by love turning his enemies into his friends. I've heard sermons on this passage, maybe you have too, where they misread this passage so severely that they think what we need to do is set doctrine aside. That's actually the most common way of reading this passage. It's how most churches actually order themselves from this passage and others like it in the Bible. They misunderstand it and say, we don't want to be a church where we talk about sound doctrine at all. Because all it does is lead to coldness. You know, the frozen chosen. It's a common phrase because it's a common error. That's a little like saying, I want to go over to OMC and roast marshmallows for s'mores on the gas fire, which is actually a little bit of light, but it doesn't put out any heat, and it kind of stinks. Or... I can go stand next to the other people who have this beautiful glowing wood fire that is bursting with heat and it smells wonderful. The wood is the doctrine. Both fire, 
demonstrate the presence of the Lord. But as soon as you turn the gas off, the gas fireplace grows cold. Keep pouring doctrine and laying the logs of truth onto the fire and let your fire burn higher and hotter and the s'mores are fantastic. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth, John writes. The solution is not to focus less on sound doctrine, but to focus on God for all he is for us in Christ and let his spirit pour his love into us such that we, without even intending it, are bursting with the very love of God for others to see. Christ ends with a final encouragement. Look at verses 6 and 7. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll talk more about them in the, in the churches to come. But they were false teachers calling for disobedience in the first century. Christ has a steel spine of divine hatred for those who teach false things and lead to wicked behaviors. Godly churches who love Christ will also have that same steel spine of hatred for sin. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that is to the one who remembers, repents, and redoes the works of love. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So how do you become one who conquers according to verse 7? According to verse 7, how do we define the one who conquers? It's the one who has an ear that hears what the Spirit says to the churches. We know that in Revelation, it's the power of grace that comes beginning to end, Revelation 1 to 22. We know that the Spirit is speaking and providing and instructing, giving John these words to write. As we meditate on the Word of God, the book of Revelation, and the whole Bible, He works in us by His power. We trust it and receive it by faith. He does the work, and He causes us to become the conquerors, the very conquerors, who He then grants the tree of life in the paradise of God. It's all about God through Christ by the Spirit beginning, middle, and end. Nothing of our salvation is owing to our works whatsoever. Not the works we do now, not the works of belief, which isn't a work, not the works we do later, which are all done through the power of God. It's all Him, none of us. Grace upon grace. God gets all the glory. Christ appeals, did you notice here, to individuals. He's speaking to all the churches, and we're all supposed to listen to what all the churches are hearing, but he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 7 brings this down very specifically. It says, to every one of you, there is a word here. Yes, it was to the Ephesians, and yes, it is to churches, but there's a specific word for Brent, and maybe for you here too. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches I'm hearing you, Lord Jesus. I'm hearing you say 
that loving you is the highest, grandest, most glorious calling you've given to me. And you've given me all this life experience, including the truth of your sovereignty and your mercy and your glory and your kindness and your sending of your son and his death and resurrection and your giving of the spirit and all the fruits and gifts he's producing in me. These all are meant to produce in me the very love that's in you. Does my wife and my son and daughter-in-law and my daughter see the love of Christ in me? Does your spouse see the love of Christ in you? Do your kids see the love of Christ in their parents? Do you kids show the love of Christ to your parents, grandparents, those online, those you work with or go to school with, those you shop with? those you do ministry with? Something radically and terribly is wrong if we give ourselves to careful, sound doctrine and we come out the other end cold and without witness and without love. There's always room to have another sermon, another Sunday school class, another discussion, another book to read, another Bible study. Every one of us has got doctrine to learn. Goodness sakes, I have forgotten so many wonderful doctrines, i got to start all over and learn all them, the good ones again. But if this church doesn't have love, and if I don't have love, and if we don't have love, then we should shut down. I will tell you personally, Romans 5.5 5 has done it for me. Romans 5.5 5 is the answer to this, this painful ache in my life. May God pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm so glad that verse is in the Bible. That's my salvation. When it comes to the very end of things, very bottom of your struggles the very bottom and very end of your life, right before you see his face, the very depth of your financial or your relational or sexual or sin struggle, the very depth of your struggles with emotions or with fears or with anger or with procrastination or doubts and frustrations of any sort and kind, the very bottom of them will land on this powerful, solid footing called the love of God. It's the answer to everyone. Christ is presenting that powerfully to the church at Ephesus and to us by extension and to you personally because he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. There's a California businessman who was quite wealthy in the turn of the second millennium around 1900. But then World War I broke out and his businesses collapsed and he was no longer a wealthy businessman living in California. So what he decided to do was to humble himself and find a job that he could work to provide for himself and his family. He started packaging lemons and oranges into crates for shipping. While Friedrich Lehman was packing oranges and lemons into crates for shipping, he was meditating on God and he was meditating on the goodness of God because he went to church the Sunday night before and he heard a mighty sermon on the love of God and so Monday morning he's meditating on the love of God and a poem came to his mind. The love of God 
is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. I wonder if he's reading Revelation. And reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, Adam and Eve, bowed down with care because of sin. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love is so sure, still shall endure all measureless and strong. Redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saint, saints and angels song. And then he sings the chorus again. And he went home at the end of that Monday. He got onto his upright piano, as he writes his bi- in his biography, and he says, I pounded out a melody and I had most of a hymn completed, but I needed a third verse. He remembered that a man, a worker at a prison in California, had given him an old poem he'd scratched on a piece of paper. The man was also a Christian, thought the poem was worth hanging on to. This maintenance worker in the prison was painting over cells where the prisoner had died and the cell was going to be used for another one. And he saw this little verse on a wall before that prisoner had died, scratched on there by him, and he scratched it down on a piece of paper, and then he painted over it. He gave that piece of paper to Layman, and Layman dug it out and read it, and he thought, just the right meter, just the right length, just the right timing, and just the right theme, I have found the third verse to my hymn. Turns out, it wasn't, created or authored by the prisoner at all, but he was simply reciting it from a Jewish poem of love to God a thousand years before. You just wonder how God can cause a Jewish believer a thousand years ago to write just the right meter, just the right rhythm, just the right theme. I wonder if you'd be willing to sing that third verse with me right now. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Let's stand. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels.